0: listening to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. In this episode, we will be sharing the audio from a previous webinar hosted as part of the iConnect webinar series. Each of these webinars has been delivered by a healthcare professional sharing their experience. Webinar recordings are available for viewing at www.ivtherapymadesimple.ca. Welcome, everybody. So, yeah, my name is Debbie Watson. I am the Enhanced Recovery Care Pathway Coordinator <laughs> at the uh, MGH site. So, I have a disclosure for today's presen- presentation. I have received financial support from Baxter. And on today's uh, presentation on the agenda, I'll be sharing our experience at the MUHD. I'll be talking a little bit about our past or present and what's up ahead. I'll really talk about how we create, implement, and sustain our program. We started our program in 2008, and it's still going strong. Our challenges and our successes that we face throughout the years. So before I start, there are polling questions. Um, So we wanna know, does your hospital have presently an enhanced recovery after surgery program? So unsure. But it's kind of a half half with yes or no, and probably unsure. I'm assuming it could be because you are using some elements of enhanced recovery. And um, but you, you might not have an official program set up. Um. so very good. That's very interesting. Uh, the next one. So there we go. This is my second home. This is the Montreal General Hospital. It is one of six sites that compose the MUHC. It was founded in 1820, so it's quite old. Uh, We have about 12,000 employees. And every year at the MUHC, we admit approximately 40,000 patients and perform approximately 35,000 surgeries. Um, Of course, that was pre-COVID. So for those who are not familiar with the enhanced enhanced recovery after surgery concept, I wanted just to show you the elements. And I decided to add one. I added the prehabilitation program because more and more, we are seeing publication coming out on the benefits of optimizing your patients before going for surgery. So there's 20 something elements and they're divided into three phases, the pre-op phase, intra-op and post-op. And in a nutshell, what we do at the MUHE is to take these elements and integrate them in surgical care pathways. It has really started with Dr. Collette, as you see here. In the late 1990s, he published this article um, on colorectal surgery. And keep in mind, in that time, during that time, length of stay was around six to 12 days but he changed that. And um, so he took 60 patients. They were not all young. They were not laparoscopic. They were open. And the post-op care program was very defined. So everybody had an epidural. Everybody was fed really early and everybody mobilized also very early. And the median length of stay really dropped to two days. So that was really uh, surprising. And a lot of times when I see people, I see institution hospitals starting an enhanced recovery program often they will start with colorectal surgery and one reason I believe it's it started there. There's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of literature to support it. Us at the MUHC we started a very very small group at two, in 2005. At that time we did send a nurse in Denmark to visit his hospital to see how they uh, were working there and we we had to adapt because we didn't have a common dining area. So they had a common dining area which really helped mobilization. So patients did not receive their meal tray sitting in their bed in their room. They really had to walk to the dining room. And we knew that if we attempted that, that infection control would stop it. So this is Dr. Fellman and myself, before uh, the gray set in in my hair, obviously, in pre-COVID time, um, she went to, Dr. Feldman. went to her chief of service and asked if we could have a working group, a multidisciplinary working group to create and implement pre care pathways across the department of surgery. The pathways would become the standard of care and we started as a pilot project. So, um, I I was taken from the pre-op clinic for two years, and I work with my team in creating care pathways, and I guess our results were pretty good because two years after my position became official, and four years after that, there's another working group uh, that was started at the Royal Vic because they have different surgeries and different services as well. And we wanted our own logos. As you can see at the bottom right, we created our own logo. It is an acronym in French, it's called PRE, Le Parcours de l'établissement chirurgical du CUSUM. And we call ourselves Shore team, the surgical recovery program. The role of the team is extremely, extremely important. I believe that uh, a nurse alone, or an anesthesiologist alone, or a surgeon alone would ha- would face many challenges to start an enhanced recovery program uh, in their hospital. Um, I think it's the teamwork. I rely a lot on my team, uh, so I think teamwork is important. Um, and people with you know people with uh, uh, leadership skills and interpersonal skills uh, are important as well people that are going to motivate people. So the role of the team, extremely important when it comes for a program like this one. It is truly an organized and external change. So I don't think anybody can do this alone. And exactly, it's exactly that. You want to remove the silos. You want you want to remove the dec- to decrease the fragmented care between the preoperative phases. So, it's no longer nursing meeting alone and physician surgeons meeting alone and, and anesthesia working alone. It's all of us sitting around the table or meeting in a team's meeting to discuss, you know, the processes of care, the medication. What are we going to do to improve? Uh, and and to be safe with our patient and to improve on our on our surgeries and our wait time and so on. So um, this is extremely important. I remember Dr. Fellman pointing that out, you know, saying that when do we have the opportunity really of sitting around and really discussing our processes of care amongst each other? because we usually meet, you know in all our in our professional uh, teams. I wanted to share this with you. I thought it was pretty uh, impressive. This was done in the States and it was a study done uh, for in education, but I think we can take the results and transfer them to healthcare. It's um, implementing change uh, with a team and without a team. So with no implementation team, after 17 years, only 14% of the changes had happened compared to having a team where 80%, just after two, three years, 80% of the changes were happening. This is my team. And of course, it wasn't like that when we started in October 2008. We were a much smaller team. I think we were five or six sitting around the table. And it it grew since then. We invited a, a nutritionist and we invited a librarian. And I'll talk about that later on. And as you see, there's also a patient there about through two, three years ago, I started to invite patients at our meeting. Again, this is pre-COVID time, but it's uh, we have a post-launch meeting where we compare uh, pre and post data, and we really want to know how to improve things. So start to ask patient, because we wanted to really know what the, ex- the experience of the patient while going through all this care pathway. And it's pretty interesting. And uh, we were all very impressed. Patients usually are very proud and they stand up at the end of that table and they talk to us about the bad, the good and the ugly. And usually when we decide that we are gonna create a new care pathway, I'm linked with clinical experts. So I'm linked with a surgeon and anesthesiologist and nursing also to create the drafts and these drafts become the final order sets. This is what we have right now at the MUHC, at the Royal Vic and at the Montreal General Hospital. Uh, Generally speaking, we revise them every five years just to make sure there's not new evidence that comes out. If you go at the bottom of the Montreal General Hospital, you'll see next. So every January I sit down with my team and we create objectives for the following year. This year is going to be a lot of focus on day surgery procedures. So there's going to be day surgery VATS, colorectal, bariatric, knee coming out. Um, There's already a day surgery hip arthroplasty that came out one or two years ago, so that's working very well. But in these COVID times, um, because we want to increase our, you know, accelerate our waitlist, we're focusing on day surgery uh, procedures so we don't have to admit patients, which is uh, liberates more beds also. We wanna make it easy for people to t- do the right decision. And it's not often easy to do that when you consider, first of all, that just to keep up with the literature. I read an article that said, you know, just to keep up with the literature, people would have to read approximately 17 articles a day. Well, that's not possible. So our goal is really to make it easy for people to, to do the right thing. So yeah, there is buy-in and there is sustainability uh, involved, but the buy-in is that when you need motivators, you need people that are gonna help uh, in the resistance and sustainability. There's there's all kinds of strategies and I'll be talking uh, to you about sustainability strategies that we, we've done. So definitely uh, reaching consensus also is important to facilitate and support if you reach consensus, it is facilitated, if it's supported by literature. Also, one more thing I wanted to to say, if you have a change that's supported by evidence or literature, the change is gonna be just so so much easier to bring about just because it's supported by evidence. I recommend if you do have a librarian in your hospital, invite her to your meetings. Um, Our librarian is so helpful, I mean, uh, whenever we're uncertain about a medication or a treatment, or even when I just start to do uh, the drafts of the order set, she will do a lit review and, and come back to me and then we start. This is in a nutshell, our process. So as I mentioned before, um, how to create our, our care pathway, we do a lit review. Then uh, I write the drafts and I work with the leads and we create a final one. And then final one is always presented to the store team. We go line by line and everybody, you know, has to, if there's something that doesn't work in the process, there's a red flag, that's when we correct it. I wrote about six months, but you know, it depends. I've had surgeons that really answer me fast. Just recently, we did a day surgery, bariatric uh, sleeve procedure. And really from beginning to end, it took two weeks. So it was like, bang, bang, they would answer me. And and that really facilitates. And once this is done, where we have the final drafts, I submit it to the hospital committee. Now I wrote 10 months, but really I've seen two years. And so that's challenging, but it's part of my job to make sure that there's no bottlenecks. And the order sets really go through all these committees without stopping and stagnating at one and stopping and not doing anything. When I... When I uh, submit to the committees, I usually start working on the patient education material. Once I know that uh, everything's ready, the order set, and unfortunately we're not electronic, we do have printing. So all our orders have to be printed and put into packages. Um, When I know all this is ready, then two weeks to a month, uh, uh, we will provide education to our nurses, surgeons and residents. And keep in mind, you know, now it's more ingrained in our culture. I mean. We started in 2008. So now when we say we're launching a new care pathway, usually staff knows what to expect. Um, We set a launch date and we communicate this launch date to everybody at the hospital. And we do an audit and revision. So I wrote three months post launch, but it depends how many surgeries we do to have enough data. And basically that's what we do. We repeat the same process for each care pathway. I wanted to share this uh, publication that we did. This comes from the MUHC. We wanted to see if it was cost-effective to have an enhanced recovery program in colorectal surgery. So we compared our hospital to um, another institution in Montreal, very similar to us that at that time did not have a enhanced recovery program. And it showed that the institution was saving, the healthcare uh, system uh, was saving also, and society was saving also close to 3,000 per patient, per colorectal patient. I'll give you some examples for that. Lost days from work for the patient and the caregiver was less when you were in an enhanced recovery program. And the CLSC visits were also less postoperatively. CLSC is like an outpatient clinic in Quebec. Uh, we also at the MUHC published on uh, our care pathways, pre-data and post-data to see what were the changes. So basically we did have shorter hospital stay uh, with most every time we launch a care pathway we reduced our length of stay. Basically there was no difference in complications or readmission except for the long resection where you see fewer complication. That's linked to our UTI um, at, at our hospital. Um, We remove the indwelling catheter, even though the epidural is still infusing. We um, published a couple of, of studies on that that showed that depending where, of course, where the epidural is, your patient will not necessarily go into urinary retention. So that was linked to lower UTIs. There's no difference in readmission, as I mentioned, and two of them looked at cost saving as well. This is what our package look like. There are basically pre-op orders. We keep we create intra-op recommendation, post-op orders and a patient education uh, uh, booklet and that will be changing I think in 2021. We knew we were looking at a, a new format or a new way of providing this. So we're really brainstorming on not you know not cutting trees or stop to cutting trees, stopping cutting trees. So I set a launch date And I communicate this launch date and, you know, I I invite people to be creative in that way of launching, uh, uh, of communicating the launch date. I'll show you later on what we did. I created a website, a free website to uh, announce this, that it worked. It really worked at the beginning, especially for residents that were new at our hospital. So they would simply go at the website. Wibbly was free. So it worked. And we educate, as I mentioned, we launch everything at the same time. And I do recommend that you do that. So probably if you launch everything at the same time, you'll have a bigger, bigger results, bigger outcomes, nicer outcomes. Uh, so don't, you know, as soon as an order set is ready, just, just don't start using it alone without the rest of it being uh, ready to use. As I mentioned, we have a post-launch meeting where we invite all our stakeholders. We really want to know what works well and what is remaining challenges because if we don't know what is challenging and does not work, we can improve it. Um, And that's where we also have, as I mentioned, have a patient, Um, that was pre-COVID time, but I'm sure I could organize it with teams having a patient to share his or her experience. This is what we did at the beginning. You know, you have database that don't communicate between each other. So I asked my engineer husband to create me something because we wanted to know why people were not leaving on their targeted date of discharge. So if we didn't know, we could improve it. So at the bottom here, you see all the care pathways we had then. They were all programmed differently. So if you look at esophagectomy, it would be programmed for six days. The lobectomy was programmed for four days. Our colorectal would be programmed for three days and it's still programmed for a length of stay of three days. But right now you're under prostatectomy just to show you how it worked. And then it was programmed for two days, not anymore. So basically the person that was on one person per floor would put in the date of discharge. The green were pretty on target, the yellow were a bit off but the red were really off and that's what we wanted to know, how come? And there was a drop down here, so people just had to click. And if they wanted to type in more specific data, they would. And that would build up. And every month I would go to each surgical floor and fill up the poster. That's not difficult to do and it's cheap. I went to Burewanguru and Torona and we did four of these. So each surgical floor had their own poster. And I truly believe the perception of change throughout, I would say the first six months to a year, I would not hear anymore that enhanced recovery wasn't working because patients always stayed longer. So we shared data with Frontline. After that, we got the interactive audit system from the ERAS Society for our colorectal patient that was funded for three years. Now, keep in mind that I was not doing that. We had hired somebody full-time there's over 120 indicators to capture for each patient. And when you're having about 300 patients a year, that was a lot of time spent. So um, the gray or blue is when you're compliant and the red or orange is when you're non-compliant with the indicators. And what I like about that, it captured not only the outcomes but your processes of care. In other words, were you doing what you're actually writing on your orders? So first line, yeah, 100% of our patients were getting, were going to the pre-op clinic and getting pre-admission education. But as you advance in the pre-operative phases, that's when we get non-compliant. So it really permitted us to see, okay, how come this is happening? 89% of our patients, second from top, were not getting their protein drinks on post-op day zero. So we asked, well, how come, what is happening? It's ordered. But we realized that the patient was coming back up to the floor after four o'clock, the kitchen was closed. So they weren't getting their protein drinks. So then we stocked the protein drinks in the fridge of each floor. So that helped. Again, with mobilization, third from the bottom. For enhanced recovery, I'm not sure what the air, where the evidence is to support this, but you need six hours. And I don't think six hours is based on anything, but we all know, yes, that patients need to mobilize, but the six hours, in any case, 65% of our patients were not mobilizing for six hours on post-op day one. If they were mobilizing for five hours and 45 minutes, we were non-compliant. So only 25% of our patients were mobilizing for six hours on post-op day one. So it really looked, it made us look at our processes to see where we were. A big chunk of our uh, program uh, was spent on patient education because we we always talk about patient-centered care and patient engagement. We looked at health literacy. So for those of you who are not familiar with the concept of health literacy, it's defined as the degree to which individuals can obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services they need to make appropriate health decisions. And there's a lot of tasks and activities that are related to health literacy. There's health promotion, health protection, disease prevention, uh, medication is a big one where often there's mistakes. Health promotion is, let's say, healthy eating and exercising. And another one that you see is called systems navigation. An example of that is going to and through healthcare facilities. And I took these pictures at the Montreal General Hospital. So. Um, as you can see, uh, I think it's, uh, it's quite confusing. And then we wonder why our patients are sometimes late at their appointments. So um, just to keep that in mind, sometimes they're, they're late and we're, we're often, it's so easy to put a non-compliant um, stamp on a patient's when actually, you know, it's a system that's really complicated to navigate through. A prevalence of low health literacy is quite high actually. It's uh, in the US, nearly half of the adult population have low health literacy. In Canada, 60% of the adult Canadians have low health literacy. In Europe, they did a survey and eight European countries participated in it, and nearly one out of two Cana- uh, out of two Europeans had inadequate or problematic health literacy skills. And I'm not going to go through all this list, but um, there are um, um, ways that people will show that they might have low health literacy skills. So they can, they're they unable to fill out forms or when they do, it's incomplete. They might climb around um, anything to diffuse, you uh, finding out that they have low literacy skills. They always bring someone at their appointments they are unable to name their medication, explain what they are for and and tell you even when they're supposed to take them and so on. And they might also say, I forgot my glasses at home. So these could be red flags. And I always say to people, please just don't give verbal information and stop then. People, patients will forget. Apparently 40 to 80% of what we tell our patients is forgotten immediately and what is recalled is is not recalled correctly. And there's several reasons for that. The hospital might not be the best area to to provide patient education. There's distractions, there's interruptions, there's bells, and also patients are stressed. Some of them might just have received a diagnosis of cancer. So I always say back it up, support it with an app, with a website, with a booklet, but just don't give verbal information alone. So we can do a lot to improve our patient understanding. And I won't again, go through all all of this, but uh, like using plain plain language, avoiding medical jargon. I'm sure everybody here knows a teach back method and there's a lot that's written on that. I like to use universal precaution, just like we do in infection control while we treat everybody potentially infected. We address people the same way as potentially having uh, low health literacy skills. Uh, And in fact, uh, uh, studies show that even people that are very well educated, when it comes to healthcare information, they prefer receiving the information in a plain language way. So let's slow down, let's repeat, and let's try to have less interruptions when we are giving information to our patients. And anybody that has seen our work know that uh, we like images. So I like to put meaningful images in our booklets And please, you know, there's always a section in our booklet called uh, resources where we insert reliable internet sites. We all know patients are going to go and see Dr. Google. They might not be able to decipher which is a reliable internet site and which is is, is not. So, and which is. I wanted to share this because that had an impact on how we proceeded with uh, our patient education. Patricia Dykes came to the MEUHE a few years back and I was I was really interested in what she presented, especially this uh, study. So they were giving something like that, the patient, it looked like an iPad. And they were asking what the patients and the nurses, but I was interested in the patient, what the patients wanted on this iPad. So they gave 37 items and they asked to rate them from zero to 10. And interestingly enough, The five items patients believed to be most important were knowing plans for the day, knowing their schedule and their goals. So the first three important items, I thought we could do something with this. And so we had blackboards in the the rooms. So we started to write the plans of the day. So the nurse in the morning would go in and write the plans of the day. It also matched our booklets. And the booklets also are really linked to the order set. So everything is linked together. And pictures can help in attention, comprehension, recall and adherence. Let's just uh, pretend here that you're a patient, you're coming to the pre-op clinic and I give you four of these. While everybody around this, this presentation might not have low literacy skills, but even then, if you get four pages of that black and white, not a little, not much of white space could be discouraging and boring. But instead, what if I give you this? You know, what do we all do when we look at a magazine? Usually our eyes gravitate to the image and if it's interesting, we'll read the one or two sentence at the bottom and then we'll read the article. And I think it's the same principle for patient education material, especially when we have uh, patients that have low, low literacy skills. Let's just make it more interesting. And if you have good image, especially for the exercise, an image can say everything. So this is our colorectal booklet, and we use a pictogram also. So a pictogram, uh, I've applied for a grant a few years back at the beginning, and we blew this up and we put them in the hallway so that when the patients were walking, they could see that in French and in English. And we did that for a few surgeries. This is our esophagectomy surgery. Actually, it's going to, it's on the objective for 2021 to be reviewed. So I'm not sure if it's going to stay like that, but that's the pictogram for esophagectomy surgery. In our booklets, we have usually all the same headings that we address. And we also have an at-home section. We ask our patients to bring the booklets back. And I did a few surveys, over 80% of our patients bring the booklets back on the day of surgery. This is especially good for nurses that are junior, uh, that are not familiar of what to say for the discharge teaching. And I think discharge teaching is very important. And I would say to them, hey, it can take a few seconds. Tell them to read, in this case would be page 30 to 36, that you will be back in an hour, an hour and a half, because they're going home today. And if there's any questions, you can go back and, and you know, address these questions with them so that everything is clear when they go home. Again, you see the resource section there. So basically we stick to the headings, these headings. I want to invite you also to go on the ERAS Society website. There is a Congress happening in New Orleans in July. Hopefully it, it won't be canceled. Last year it was canceled because of COVID. So that could be very, very interesting. And if you go on their website, you'll see the program as well. If you go on the ARA Society website also, you'll have plenty of guidelines and I love these guidelines and I always look at them before I start a new care pathway. They go to each element and they say if they're, how they are recommended and, and how how is the evidence that supports each element. Pretty, very, very interesting. So go on this website, you'll have a lot of literature to support what you want to do. We also have, um, Enhanced Recovery Canada. So a few years back, Canadian Patient Safety Institute started to work with a group uh, to create care pathways. And so I invite you to go on the website and look what is available. Enhanced Recovery Canada, basically, we took the 22 elements of the ERAS society and we integrated them in the six core ERAS principle that you see here, which is patient and family engagement, nutrition, management, the fluids, the opioid sparing and perioperative best practice and mobilization. There are tools available for you if you go on the website and this is for bowel surgery. So bottom right is the patient booklet. PreCare is an animated video that's available in English and French and I believe in 16 other language and subtitles. And there's the resource for healthcare providers. And this is all available for everybody. And in 2021, we will have the hip and knee arthroplasty coming out with the same tools available and the hysterectomy as well. If I knew then what I know now, I think when we we launched, we started our program, I wasn't that strategic. Perhaps I was, but I didn't know I was. But in any case, I also invite you to go. This is Canadian, the Centre for Implementation. I've learned a lot with them. Um, And they provide, I think, free course once or twice a year that is really helpful. They give you, they provide the best strategies to use for implementing change. I believed at the beginning that if you provide education uh, people would change their way of doing, not really. So education is for a lack of knowledge, but having champions, people that are able to motivate that is for resistance and visual reminders for forgetfulness, which is really should be used at the beginning when you launch a new care pathway. So then I asked, why were we so successful? Well, I think we were successful. So I looked at Stone's systematic review that lists the facilitators and the barriers to implementation, the more frequently discussed to the less frequently discussed. And I went, "Hmm, did we have these? So yes, we did have ongoing education and we still do today. We, I, we have a multidisciplinary a team, strong team with good communication. So bottom right, that's where you see the Webley uh, website that I created, which is not used anymore, but it was really used at the beginning. So I wanted residents to know the surgical recovery program at the MUHE, what you, know, what you need to know in five minutes or less. And we had patient engagement and education. That's one of our pictograms. We did continuous auditing and feedback. And yes, we provided those results to the frontline clinician. I think we had great leadership and administration support. And also um, we had, we tried as much as possible to align our program with the current hospital practices So on the top here where you see um, Enhanced Surgical Recovery Program, Sure program, that's on our intranet. And uh, Claudianne and I, two coordinators, we update this. We put all our care pathways on this. We put our reference for all our publications go on this. So we made sure we had a big space on our intranet. Effective supporters. Yep, we had a full-time enhanced pathway coordinator again, that's me and Dr. Feldman. And the only reason why we took that picture is that because we that day it was a coincidence, but we were wearing the same colors. And we had regular scheduled meeting, I believe that the first five to six years every Friday 930 to 1030 in the same room. And I would send a reminder every Wednesday to people with the topic of discussion that was done like every Friday. Now we have less meetings, but we, I don't think we pass a month without having a meeting. And of course, we standardize our protocol uh, within the hospital. When I say that, you know, when I say we're gonna launch a new care pathway, staff know what to expect now. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we didn't have any barriers. Um, I think rotating staff and resident is still challenging because there might be less communication with the staff that is leaving and the one that's coming in. Uh, resistance from patients, perhaps at the beginning we had a little bit with the, when we changed from the NPO status to letting patients drink up to two hours, patients, no matter if people were always saying the same thing to the patients, uh, still some patients would come in on the day of surgery thinking that they would be cancelled if uh, they drank uh, liquids. So there are, you um, Some facilitators, facilitators, I believe, we wrote some collective order and protocols to help um, manage these. Like an example, the drinking two hours pre-op is the responsibility of the pre-op nurses to decide who will have the carb drink or not, who will be able to drink or not. We also created a post-op urinary retention protocol to prevent from patients having uh, right away an indwelling catheter inserted. So we do two ins and out before having that indwelling catheter. And just recently we created a high fecal output protocol and it's in the approval phase. And I wanted to share you the collective order, what it looks like. This is the, the um, hydration. And we did address the diabetic two and the obese patients. And I, you know, I put recovery, but it's not only, it's not just the only product that's available. That's our product, but it, there's other products that are available in Canada. Uh, and, you know, the main author of this is Dr. Baldini who is part of my team and is the director also of uh, the pre-op clinic at the MGH and anesthesiologist as well. And we have contraindications, and they're They're all written here and it's the the responsibility of the pre-op nurse to know this. So the risk of aspiration and there's a lack of evidence for diabetic type one, so they are excluded. If you're interested also, I published two articles in Nursing 2017 and Nursing Management 2018 on the role of the coordinator. And please celebrate your success. I think that's very important. So in 2018, we celebrated our 10th year anniversary. and uh, you know, I made sure that people that had retired, that were part of the initial team members, the five sitting around the table in October 2008, were invited, and they did come back. And so we had bagels and coffee, and I asked the journalists for, from the MUHC to come and take pictures and write an article. And so, in finishing, I want to point you know, my point out my key points is that teamwork is important. Avoid working in silos. And there are various implementation strategies that you can use to engage all stakeholders, including the patients. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.